This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Larry Perel in for Rob Archer. And I'm Elsa Ramon in for Charles Feldman today. So, gas prices. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's been rough. Will they ever come down? We're going to go in-depth to find out why they're shooting up so quickly and what might bring them down. And Governor Newsom says he's making moves to get the winter blend out early, but others in Sacramento say more needs to be done. And more, can you believe more, Taylor Swift? Yeah, Travis Kelsey as well. It could be a troubling sign that Taylor met Travis's mom so early. She also met some other people that, uh, you know, you usually do when you start dating someone new. I don't know. Is this all problematic? We're going we're gonna to sort it all out because we are your Taylor Swift authority here. But in the meantime, we're going to start with the high gas prices. Kevin Slagle is with the Western States Petroleum Association, which is a trade association representing oil companies in the Western U.S. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. I can't imagine, and I'm sorry to say that you may not be the most popular person uh, right now, at least in the state of California. But, you know, every time we see the prices go up like this dramatically, we always hear the same things. We're on a gas island here in Los Angeles and California. Um, You know, there are issues with policy in Sacramento. Maybe the gas tax needs to be pulled back. We need to go to a winter blend. The refineries are down. At what point, you know, can do you think people will have enough of the excuses or reasons we hear and just start seeing results of why the oil companies aren't able to not pass on maybe possibly any of the cost to the consumer when things like refineries shut down. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, I think we probably all have had enough. I, I don't, we don't disagree that, you know, these gas prices are not good for anybody that uh, anyone likes them. And yeah, I was told earlier today that I might be the most unpopular guy in the state having to speak on this, but, but, but certainly the public's fed up and and they have a right to be. What's unfortunate is that it's not as simple as some politicians, and I think we've heard a lot, a lot of rhetoric the last couple of days in particular. It's not the market, the fuel markets are not as simple as as some politicians would want you to believe. And the things that you listed earlier on are are all factors. Um, Again, not satisfying factors, but market forces really are the driving driving force of costs at the pump. Here's what I'm struggling to understand, and I think many people are struggling to understand as well. The national average today, right, for a gallon of regular gas, according to AAA, $3.83. Uh, they also say it was three eighty-three yesterday, yet we rose an average of $0.12 cents per gallon overnight to an average of $6.28. So what gives? I mean, there's a couple, there's a number of factors here. Some of them, again, you, you know, there are the fuel island issues and others, but from what I understand, there are there are a couple of refineries uh, doing maintenance uh, or have been doing maintenance. That affects supplies. That, of course, will a- address costs. Um, you know, California, when it comes to public policy, like you stated, we you know that first dollar thirty is taxes and fees, um, and uh, California is continuing to look at actually raising those types of things moving forward. So you take in those factors, then you take in sort of the unique markets uh, and what gas station owners need to do wherever they may be located. To make sure that they're making enough stay afloat, or you know, managing their uh, specific costs wherever they may be located, and it adds up to a, you know, California is a costly place to do business. I can tell you on the refining side, it costs five times more in California to refine than anywhere else in the country, and so those costs um, 
you know, work their way through the system and unfortunately are borne by, by consumers. Um, and when there are supply disruptions, we see these peaks, we see, uh, you know, the public outcry, we get it. Um, but it really is, it does come down to policy, market forces, and, you know, the unique nature of California in so many ways. Well, you mentioned $1.30 uh, in fees. Uh, to my knowledge, the gas tax in California is 51 cents a gallon. Is that not correct? Well, you have, that's where you start, right? And then you have a cap and trade program that adds about 30 cents a gallon. You have a low carbon fuel standard program that adds, I think right now, 12 or 13 cents per gallon. Um, and then there, of course, there's federal taxes and underground storage taxes and, and a number of fees that go with that. So I, I think even Governor Newsom said last night that, you know, California's portion that's unique is around 85 cents a gallon. Um, that's not counting the blend switches and, and such, which also incre increases costs. So that's where we're starting. And look, in this really uncomfortable time and, and this this time of public outcry, one thing we need to understand is it could get worse, right? Right now, today, the California Air Resources Board is looking at increasing, you know, some amendments that would increase the cost of the low, car low carbon fuel standard by like forty cents per gallon. No, so look, I, 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 I get I get all that, but what do you yeah. say? What do you say to the people in Southern California getting hammered by these gas prices? Right, many thinking that the industry is trying to stick it to us because we're banning the sale of gas-powered cars by the year 2035. I feel like we're just kind of like with our hands tied behind our yeah, back. Yeah, no. Look, I would say we totally understand your frustration. We get it. Um, and unfortunately, we <laughs> can you can't... do can you do something? Well, we can, can you, what we can do is continue to point to the facts. As unsatisfying as they are, that's how we have real progress, right? We, we if we don't want to deal with the real world issues and instead sort of deal with the political rhetoric, and let's let's be honest, that's been uh, the number one attack line for the past year coming out of this administration is is us. For, sure. Our governor says he doesn't like to demonize people or doesn't like people who demonize others. He does a pretty good job of that with the, the women and men of our industry. But uh, that sure. said, we get it. So, but we have to continue to point to the facts, and the facts are our market, facts are public policy. And and uh, all right, and unfortunately, hey, Kevin, we're going to gonna, sort of we're, doing, we're gonna sorry, unfortunately but, we're going to have to end it there, unfortunately, because yeah. we're just we're just running out of time. But Kevin Slagle yeah. with the Western States Petroleum Association. Thanks so much for being with us. Hey, you bet. Thank you. We're going to go back to the high gas prices because we're not done with this. Yes. Yet we're all we're all pretty mad over this. Assembly Republicans are demanding the gas tax be suspended to help with the prices. This comes as Governor Newsom said today he has taken steps to get the winter blend out early so prices can drop for us here. Republican Assemblyman Joe Patterson from just north of Sacramento is with us. Thanks so much for being with us, Joe. Thanks for having me. So the gas tax, if it was clawed back right now, I mean, um, Newsom would first of all have to call a special session, correct, to temporarily suspend the gas tax, which is 58 cents per gallon uh, of a tax on fuel. How easy is that to do, though? He cannot unilaterally decide to make that happen. Well, I mean, he can unilaterally call a special session, and then obviously it takes uh, the legislative leaders to come together. But uh, what I've seen in the legislature is uh, uh, the Democrats uh, work closely together. And so if he called a special session because he wanted to suspend it, uh, I feel pretty confident that uh, it would get suspended. Yeah, look, uh, in March, Governor Newsom signed a bill, uh, right, to provide oversight uh, for the oil yeah. industry in California. Uh, and he um, uh, he issued a statement that day saying California took on big oil and won. But I don't think anybody really feels that that's happened. Where has all the oversight gone? 
Well, hey, that's a great question because I, I, it's done nothing. I mean, gas prices have continued to go up. And what, what's interesting is this was all just, uh, you know, I almost hate to use this word, but virtue signaling because uh, he loves to blame greedy oil companies for this. But if that's true, why are they only greedy here in California? There's something uniquely wrong with our energy market right here in California that causes high prices, which is why, you know, we're $2 more than other states. But is it, though, because we just had Kevin Slagle on with the Western States Petroleum Association uh, representing the oil companies. And, you know, uh, if this is going to be politicized, one party is going to blame the policies here in California that are put in place by Democrats. But if you've got someone like Kevin Slagle with the Western States Petroleum Association, he's representing all the oil companies. He's even saying that, you know, it's a problem of the same reasons we hear all the time. Refineries being shut down, which means, you know, lower supply, higher prices. We're on a gas island and, you know, all the other things we hear. So is it necessarily policy coming out of Sacramento? Oh, 100 percent. These are absolutely decisions being made here in Sacramento. We have a special blend, as it was alluded to in the intro, um, you know, we do, we've actually, they've just signed legislation earlier this year um, that continues to go on that takes more production offline that restricts uh, even existing uh, wells. And California, I think, is spending $250 million in the last budget to close uh, what's currently are unused wells, but that doesn't mean they're all unusable in the future. So, but just our refining capacity in California for the unique blend that we use. So we are we are very reliant on foreign dictators to bring us our oil. These are definitely California problems that we have here that we could solve. And in fact, the decisions that are being made in Sacramento every single year make it worse and worse and worse. And yes, the refining capacity. I mean, why would you invest here in California with additional refining capacity, which start which starting in 2030, we said, hey, no more uh, gas powered uh, uh, cars to be sold in the state. It starts phasing them out. So, yes, it is true. The policy decisions we're making here are to blame. So of those policy decisions very quickly, how how much, though, are the economic forces between a ban on the sale of gas powered vehicles by 2035 and the oil companies continuing to raise these gas prices working against each other? Uh, well, you know, I'm a I'm an elected official, not an economist, but uh, I will say that when 12 percent, uh, we what California is about roughly what, 12 percent of the population, of the entire United States and what happens in California, as they always say, sort of trickles down everywhere else. And so I don't think it's it's uh, irrelevant to say, hey, look, we're going to stop selling cars in this state. Well, the problem uh, is it's not that, really trickling down everywhere else because we're still paying $2 more per gallon than the national average, at least. Well, exactly. And so what? So that that's, that's why it indicates to me it has nothing to do with what the oil companies are doing. It's what's happening here in California. Again, they're not just quote-unquote greedy here in California. It's unique issues here in California that were that are happening in this state. Otherwise, we wouldn't be $2 more a gallon. That's crazy. Yeah, no, it, uh, it, it certainly is. Look, at some point in time, more people are going to get in their gas-powered vehicles or their electric vehicles, their EVs, and drive right out of California. Republican Assemblyman Joe Patterson from just north of Sacramento. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. 
Later in the show, was Taylor Swift meeting Travis Kelsey's mom kind of a bad sign? Too much too soon? We're going to talk to a dating coach who will explain the potential problem with it. Right now, though, the federal government headed for a shutdown unless Congress comes up with a deal and votes on it. By late Saturday night, right around the corner, another shutdown could have impacts on the overall economy and your finances. Mark Hamrick is Bankrate's senior economic ana- analyst and uh, joins us now. Mark, thanks for uh, being on. Hello, Larry and Elsa. Good to be with you. Uh, great to have you. Uh, you know, we've been in these situations before, but we always seem to find some common ground. Uh, for the listener in their car, maybe or streaming at home right now or at work, uh, why should they feel that this time is any different? And how could this uh, uh, be affecting their everyday lives if it does happen? Well, the last time was not that different in, or was quite different in the sense that it lasted 35 days. Uh, that was heading into the early part of 2019. And there are uh, long-lasting repercussions from these partial government shutdowns, particularly the ones that last longer. And so, first of all, billions of dollars in lost economic output. You're paying hundreds of thousands of federal workers when you get around to catching up with the funding of the federal government to give them back pay. You're paying them ultimately to do nothing because you're going to furlough hundreds of thousands of workers. The mission-critical workers, yes, they're told to go... Uh, you know, remain on the job, the TSA workers, the air traffic controllers, uh, members of the military are not in a position to be paid here unless Congress moves a special bill through. Think about the message that tells the people who are willing to sacrifice their lives. So uh, there is lost output. There are no real winners in a partial government shutdown. Plenty of losers. Well, uh, TSA workers, there have been some rumblings of TSA workers and uh air traffic controllers and some of the others who are considered essential, who would have to still uh, come into work but not be paid. They have said that eventually, if this continues to go on and on, um, they're not going to be there. Um, So what happens if we start seeing that? Well, that's the point. Uh, This happened last time around where we ended up having problems with air travel in this country because ultimately, uh, effectively, you have these people who say enough is enough, either pay us or, you know, we're not all willing to show up. And so they're told to show up. They aren't paid. Uh, and those are the mission critical people who apparently, you know, are underappreciated by all members of Congress to the extent that they're not willing to fund the government. So, uh, you know, that's kind of among the worst case scenarios, but there's plenty of others. Uh, we'll have people who don't have sufficient emergency savings. That's a consistent finding from bank rate that met most Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Most cannot pay an emergency expense of $1,000 or more from savings. There are contractors who will lose business. They will not be paid ultimately because there will be this gap in their funding and their relationship with the government. And then there's the tangential workers and businesses, the dry cleaners, the sandwich shops, the Uber drivers, if you will, who are reliant on federal workers and the sort of regular maintenance of federal funding who just simply won't get paid because those workers won't be on the job. So we've got uh, about another uh... I don't know, 30 to 60 seconds here. Um, How does this affect our debt, our national debt? And 
in interest rates for that matter? Well, for, yeah, first of all, uh, you're going to be ending up paying the furloughed workers to do nothing once they get their back paid for however long this occurs, if indeed it does. So that's a waste in federal spending right there. The ratings agencies like Moody's and Fitch have already drawn attention to what they basically uh, term the dysfunction of the federal government. And of course, we know that we were up against the risk of a unprecedented default earlier this year that truly would have been catastrophic. This is not catastrophic, but it definitely causes financial hardship, and it's emblematic of the lack of sufficient functionality with our totality of elected officials to solve real problems. Uh, you know, Mark, um, but not everyone is going to get back pay here if they're furloughed. Who are some of the, the victims in this who aren't going to see any compensation from a shutdown? Well, if you're a contractor, uh, you just simply lose the business uh, and so or or the pay. And that's what I'm saying about the tangential uh, businesses and workers who may not be directly, you know, paid by Uncle Sam, but those money, that money ends up finding its way to them. And we're seeing that, for example, here in the nation's capital where I live, where there's already been a fall off in restaurant business, according to reporting by The Washington Post, because these people are anticipating that they're not going to be paid during the shutdown. All right, Mark Hamrick is Bankrate's Senior Economic Analyst. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. You are listening to KNX In-Depth with Larry Perel and for Rob Archer. I'm Elsa Ramon in for Charles Feldman. Pedro Noguera is Dean of the Rossier School of Education at USC, but now he's got a new responsibility as a member of the U.S. Department of Education's Committee on the Use of Artificial Intelligence in Education. It's to help figure out how AI can be used effectively in schools. He writes about it in an op-ed piece for The Hill. Pedro Nogueta is with us now to talk about it. Thank you for being with us. Uh, thanks for having me. Okay, so the first time we heard about AI in schools was when, you know, chat GPT and other generative AI uh, programs started uh, being used by college students, maybe to write their papers and complete some of their work and all that kind of stuff. But eventually, when the novelty of it wears off and, uh, you know, people using it for nefarious reasons, it can be a useful tool in schools. What are some of the use cases you're making for using it in schools? Oh, it can be a great way to help teachers in developing lesson plans, in providing uh, feedback to students. You know, that one of the things that always is a challenge for, for teachers and faculty is just being degrading. And this allows them to, to give more precise, detailed feedback to students. And it also is a great way to provide training to teachers, uh, professional development. So there are a lot of really uh, good uses for AI in education. Well, you just uh, wrote an op-ed, was in the Hill, uh, and it said, if the pace of AI development isn't tracked, really, or applied properly, it'll widen the divide of inequality in learning, how so? Well, it's a question of who has access and how do we ensure that the access is equitable? Um, as we saw during the pandemic, um, online learning became, was essential for millions of kids throughout the United States, but not everybody had good internet. Some kids were doing work off of their phones and obviously that's not the best way in which to do your schoolwork. And so what we've seen is the gaps in learning are wider for poor kids, disadvantaged kids. And my concern is that unless measures are taken now, we, those kinds of disparities will grow as AI becomes more available. 
So how do you propose making sure that AI is being used as a tool to help students all across the board? What do you plan to get done or what kind of legislation might need to happen to make sure all kids, no matter what socioeconomic status they're in, get this advantage? Well, we're going to have to make sure that regulators, the policymakers, step in to make sure that um, there is uh, controls put in and build partnerships with the tech companies who are making a lot of money right now um, to ensure that they are not just treating schools as consumers, but as partners. Um, and, and, and so that we can make sure that the uh, technology is available. Um, if, if these companies uh, work with educational institutions and that includes universities, I think we have the ability to use this as a way to drive learning and expand opportunity. All right. That sounds like a pretty ominous. I, I, I agree with you, uh, but it sounds like a pretty ominous task. How do you take those first steps to try to make that happen? Well, you know, under the Clinton administration uh, several decades ago, we saw the government step in to expand uh, access to computers and to the Internet. We need similar investments. But here, you know, the, the tech companies need it needs a public private partnership because they stand to benefit from um, financially from these investments. So they should also be um, making the investment to ensure access. Um, and of course, you know, um, getting that technology in there, you said it's going to basically take a village. You're going to need the, uh, you know, the tech industry and the companies to be able to step up and provide these types of uh, services. But what about training for teachers as well? Because teachers and educators are going to have to learn how to implement this technology so that it is maximized for the students and their learning. And that's a very important point, because as we know now, <clears throat> young people are quicker at using and adapting to the technology than older people typically. Um, so we have to put more resources into training teachers and, and professors, both on how to use it, but also how to ensure there's no plagiarism and copyright, uh, copyright infringements and intellectual properties protected. So, you know, that's again where regulation is needed, but you also need uh, investments in people, in our faculty to make sure that they are up to speed. All right. Pedro Noguera is the dean of the Russ Hears School of Education at USC. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey. Yes, we're going there again today because there's just so much to talk about. <laughs> you kind of have to. But... I know we have to. She's set to watch Travis play again on Sunday in New York against the Jets. Apparently, ticket sales have exploded for that game because there is word she's going to be there. Well, it's called the Taylor effect, right? Isn't yes. that what they call it? Right. Yes. So uh, Taylor, of course, uh, was in the Kelsey suite last Sunday with Travis's mom, but that raises some questions. So is she meeting mom way too soon? Megan Wex is a relationship coach who created the Manfunnel method and the manfunnel.com website. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Elsa. All right. So is this just I mean, we can talk about the Taylor effect all day long. Is this just speculation, though, on how tenuous relationships in Hollywood or in the entertainment industry in general can be? I don't think it's related to a pattern in Hollywood dating. I think it could be related or give us some insight as to her attachment style and a little naivety when it comes to her relationships in general. 
So in addition to being, you know, two big celebrities, one in the sports world and, of course, one in the entertainment world that that they face as just a regular dating person. Now you've got this in the mix that maybe she's meeting close relatives way too soon. Why is that such a big red flag? I mean, I know, I mean, usually when you're dating somebody new, at least I, I, you know, it's a, there's a few months, at least six months or so before you start meeting not only the parents or or relatives, brothers, sisters, friends, but you know, you, you want to make sure that uh, things are on solid ground before you go there. So why is this a red flag? It just seems like she's pushing that intimacy before the right time. And in this case, she was invited to the game and she wanted to go for it. And I completely understand. I get that. It could have been coincidental that, of course, the parents were going to be there as well. Right. But if you look at her dating history, we see that this is a true pattern. So many of the men she's dated in Hollywood have met the parents and they've met them really soon, or she's met um, the man's parents very soon. And I mean, within weeks. But how much, I mean, sorry, Larry, I know you've got a burning question about Taylor Swift, but, but I mean, how much of it though is possibly the parents, you know, oh, my son is dating Taylor Swift. I would really love to meet Taylor Swift. And what does she do? Say, nah, you know, not not really. Uh, You know, that doesn't make a great first impression either. I mean, of course, we don't know the, the dynamics and the details of how they eventually met. But I would think that if one of the parents or family wants to meet her, she might be eager to do it if things seem really going well in the beginning stages of the relationship. It seems like she is eager to do it. So when the person gives her an invite, she jumps on it. And that is the exact moment where I feel as a relationship coach through coaching so many women and my paradigm, the mistake that I see just regular people doing as well when the intimacy, you know, could be slowed down a bit. So when you say slow down, I mean, look, I, I mean, I'm not sure if Travis called his mom and said, I'd like I'd like to bring <laughs> I'd like to bring Taylor to the game. Do you do you think that's OK? Um, but I mean, if they are dating, I mean, this is something that they would, you know, I guess they would do. Right. Uh, so how does that translate to what you're talking about in terms of this sort of, you know, I don't know, afraid of being abandoned or this anxiety uh, or anxious det- attachment style kind of thing? Well, just, I just, let me give you one example so you can reference what I'm talking about. I mean, mind you, this was some years ago with, with Jake Gyllenhaal, he had invited her to Thanksgiving and she literally evidently ditched her parents and was like, I'm going for this. And it was just so new and it was this whirlwind. And then she was hurt where she not only writes a song about it, but she writes a 10 minute song about the situationship. And it just seems like this is a common thread um of jumping in soon so yes there's influences where her their family of course wants to meet this this superstar but she's actually taking them like after the invite where jake took her to his thanksgiving that same week she took them home to see her parents and the parents seem to be involved very soon and so the inkling i have is that she just has this either conscious or subconscious driver to get this intimacy going where it's just putting the cart before the horse in the relationship. And I think that there's that old saying, the hotter the fire, the shorter the flame. And we're seeing this over and over again. There's a lot of truth um, in that statement. Well, if 
if they make it with all the pressures they face, I will be very happy for them. If they don't, we will be getting a uh, blockbuster album shortly. <laughs> <laughs> from Taylor Swift. All the details about the, about the relationship that <laughs> yes, went bad. Yes, that's right. We'll get yeah. another 10-minute song about possibly uh, a relationship. All right. Um, <laughs> Megan Wicks, thank you so much. Megan Wicks from uh, the Man Funnel Method, who created it, and the manfunnel.com website. All right. This has been KNX In-Depth. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 o'clock.